Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. You wouldn't know it because I don't preach from Acts too often, but it is one of my favorite books, and I, I don't say that lightly. It's one of the first books I've ever taught through from beginning to end. Um, the Lord tarries, my prayer is that we get to go from his ministry in Sunday afternoons right into Acts. Uh, I've talked to the men about that a little bit. I think it would be uh, unique to go through Acts and, and the other books of the New Testament following those epistles as those churches are introduced so that we can see it through uh, to its conclusion. Uh, but who knows what the Lord will permit, how soon he'll come back. Um, we'll just be thankful for what it is he allows us to do. Amen. The title of the message is Almost and Altogether. Uh, so you likely know where this is going, but we're going to read all of Acts 26, uh, and we're going to reference quite a bit of Acts 25, and I'll be honest with you, Acts 27 is my favorite chapter, that's the Eurycliton, and if I feel moved to, I'm going to chase that down too, but uh, the text that we have is all of Acts 26. It says in verse 1, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Agrippa's a king, we're going to reference that in a minute too, but you should know that as we get started here. It's very unique that he allows Paul to uh, speak in his own um, defense, so to speak. And then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Verse 6, And, I, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with, it, with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Verse 12, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Verse 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other than things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, right on the heels of him saying Gentiles, by the way, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness, for the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they, they that sat with them, the governor is Festus. Verse 31, And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. And that's what the Jews were seeking, was death for Paul. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider this text and the truth therein, Father, we ask that you give us understanding of the events, of the time, of these characters, of the charges brought before them, of Paul, of the things that you commanded of him and the things that they convicted him of. We ask, Father, you put aside our own distractions. There are many, our own sadness and weakness. We know you to be our friend that sticketh closer than a brother. We know you to be our strength. And, Father, we ask that at least for this hour, all these other things go away. They take their place amongst the list of minuscule events that, though tragic in the moment, mean nothing in the scope of eternity. We ask, Father, you be with our hearts and minds this hour, that you would increase, that I would decrease. And, Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's my expectation that we are indeed familiar with what we read here, especially verses 26, 27, 28, and 29. For the king knoweth of these things, Paul says, before whom also I speak freely, quoting verse 1. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. Those strange sacrifices that Brother David just talked about, uh, the, the man here in Tulsa is going to answer for what he did. But the things he spat upon, and I'm sure that article was grotesque, and I'm thankful he stopped. The events of Calvary were not done in a corner. And even today in 2024, folks despitefully use those events, folks despitefully push them away as though they never happened, and now apparently mock them openly before congregations. But those things were not done in a corner. At least the first half of this message I've written in a very similar way to how Paul is responding in this chapter. 
Oh, King Agrippa. He's talking to Agrippa. When Festus interrupts, he says, I've been asked to speak freely by King Agrippa. So we're going to speak freely to King Agrippa as well. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Agrippa had a reputation for being very studious, very aware of the prophets and of the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is not, we, we might be tempted to say he's appealing to the head knowledge that Agrippa has. He's not. He's calling for Agrippa to take a stand. He's calling for Agrippa to line up the events that did not happen in a corner, did not happen secretly with what he knows to be true from the prophet's writings because it reveals the same thing. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. What is it, though, to be almost persuaded? Did Agrippa see the difference between himself and Paul? Let me ask it again. Did Agrippa see that Paul was in a very different circumstance than he was? I like to picture this chapter, and really a string of chapters here, where Paul is shackled. And my kids have heard this description before, but likely shackled to the corner. It's probably a little darker where he is, considering the pomp and circumstance in which Agrippa came into town last chapter. But Paul's not released. Paul's not free. We know that from the last few verses. The circumstances between Agrippa and Paul are very, very different. And it was not the bondage or the shackles about Paul's wrists and ankles that made them different. These are merely the passing pursuits of the enemy himself, straining to hold back the will of the Father and the preaching of the gospel. And he's still doing it today. I believe Satan's content with people being almost persuaded, or at least in believing that there can be an almost persuaded. The enemy will not win. Christ arose in victory, not almost victory, altogether victory. He will not win. We have no need to succumb to such thoughts and such intimidation. Did he say, I'm almost persuaded because Bernice was there, because Festus was there, because Paul was there and he didn't want to give Paul the, the, the dignity of, of thinking he had anything to do with it? No. If we're ashamed of the Lord Jesus in public, we're ashamed of the Lord Jesus in private too. Understand, there's not much difference. The Lord Jesus has called for his Christians, his true Christians, his altogether Christians, to be unashamed of him at all times. If I'm unashamed of the Lord Jesus in the pulpit, but I'm ashamed to tell my kids about him in my house, well, like we said on Thursday night, what is said in quiet places, you'll see it eventually in the fruit. It will be pronounced loudly. So we have two points. What is it to be almost a Christian? And what is it to be an altogether Christian? We'll begin with the misnomer. What is it to be almost Christian? There's no such thing. Well, pastor, no, 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 listen. Can you be almost saved? Did Jesus almost die? Did he almost come back from the dead? Did the male factor on the one side make it to the, the, the paradise at the end of the day, but the other one almost make it? No. He was full out rebelling even in dying. He wasn't almost anything. This is a dangerous thing that I'm afraid is much worse in our day than any other time in history. The idea that almost is good enough. It's not. 
almost unleavened bread, but it has a little. What's a little leaven do? It leavens the whole lump. Now it's all leavened. It's not almost. It's altogether leavened. Grape juice being almost wine? No, it's not. It's altogether something else. Beloved, these types are very important because it points out the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we've learned of the Lord's ministry, He's not been wishy-washy on any of it. The woman at the well in Samaria, and this ties in well with the subject of divorce that we talked about last week because she had many. He didn't ignore that, did he? No, it was probably very painful. She didn't want to relive that with a complete stranger at the well. She certainly didn't want to relive that with the Lord of Lords and King of Kings once he revealed himself. But it had to be addressed because he doesn't make almost Christians. He makes altogether Christians. There's some things for us to consider here under the heading of what is an almost Christian. First, the mere knowledge of the way of salvation through Christ. That's all they may have is the mere knowledge of the way of salvation through Christ. Secondly, and we'll go through these more in detail, but I'll give you the list first. The mere conviction of the desirableness of embracing him. That's all they have. Thirdly, mere excitement concerning our relationship to him. And fourthly, mere reformation of our outward lives. First, the mere knowledge of the way of salvation through Christ. Paul tells us in the opening that Agrippa knew the Hebrew customs and and questions. Acts 26, verse 3, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Paul even says that was uh, it was that way for him when he was younger. From his youth, he had full knowledge. In the very next verse, he says, I had full knowledge of religion. I had full knowledge of the history of the Jews. But notice that uh, what he says to Agrippa, though, in verse 8. Because if you read it right, it's a little jarring. We go through the, the, the presentation of who Paul is, and we go right back to it again in the following verse. But in verse 8, it's kind of like he stops and looks up at Agrippa. And he says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? This is a very direct question. He doesn't say, I was asked in my youth this question. He doesn't say that the Jews asked this of me and then convicted me. What's he suddenly talking about here? Agrippa's heart. Why should it be thought an incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead? If you're here today and you think it's an incredible and impossible thing that he raised the dead, you're not saved. Because if you don't believe he raised the dead, more specifically that he raised himself from the dead, you do not believe in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. You do not believe that he rose again. You think it's incredible that maybe it happened, but you don't believe that it happened. A mere knowledge does not save. We've got to get this right. Verse 26, For the king knoweth of these things, Paul says, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this was not done in a corner. It's the same subject matter. Do you think it an incredible thing that God should raise the dead? Knowledge of what the people are saying will not save you, O King Agrippa. What will you do with this Jesus you've heard so much about? It wasn't done in secret. It wasn't done in quiet. You now come after me. And you have to admit there's some similarities between the pursuit of me and the persecution of me and the one I just told you about that stopped me in Damascus Road. 
It is a terrifying thing to have the truth before you and yet deny it for the comforts of the flesh. But with mere knowledge, though, you may not know the depths of the terror until you depart from this life. Secondly, mere conviction of the desirableness of embracing Him. Paul says there in our text in verses 9, 10, and 11, he's speaking about himself now. As I said, he jumps right back into a little bit of a history lesson on himself. In verse 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I (coughs) also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And with uh, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. The mere conviction of the desirableness of embracing him, that is all that an almost Christian would have. It wasn't just a mere thought with Paul. He actually did do a lot of things in contradiction to who the Lord Jesus Christ was before he knew him. Everything he lays out there, he says, I had authority. I signed off on it. I was fully committed. Before this, he says, I was of the greatest sect of Pharisees. A Pharisee of Pharisees. The chief of sinners was our Paul. It's hard to read through verse 1 and 11. Uh, 1 through 11, there was a man, uh, he was a preacher, actually, who uh, I had taught on Acts 26 and came to me and said, you got Paul wrong. Paul's one of the greatest missionaries in the Bible. I said, I don't remember saying that. He wasn't. Well, the way you preach through verses 1 through 11, you make him sound like a monster. I don't remember saying that he wasn't a monster. What's the problem? Well, he's the greatest missionary. We shouldn't talk about him that way. I'm not here to respect the memories of men. Paul's considered one of the greatest missionaries because the Lord used him to be one. But he was a despicable, wicked sinner just like me. Saved by grace and used mightily by the hand of God. And that's what verses 1 through 11 says. Paul says, these shackles are nothing compared to the shackles to my old man nature before I was saved. I could be nothing but what I truly was. My fruit was an expression of my true nature. And he says, with the utmost authority, that didn't relieve my sin. I had the utmost authority. With their death, I didn't turn my back. I faced it because that was what I was committed to. He was without understanding, without a savior in the time when these things were accomplished. He writes about that later. But in this particular chapter, in verse 22, we see that after his salvation, it wasn't the authority of men. It wasn't the dedication and pursuit of mind. It was only by the help of God that he indeed embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by the help of God that any of us do as well. Without such help, King Agrippa, you shall remain convinced that this Jesus might be good for some, but not for yourself. Thirdly, mere excitement concerning our relationship to him. Agrippa was excited to hear Paul's testimony, not from a a proxy, but from the man himself. Consider the verses that lead up to this. Go back to Acts 25. We're going to read verses 14 through 27. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. If you don't know Acts, Festus and Felix, they're fun. About whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. Speaking of Paul. 
to whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. Against whom, when the accuser stood up, they brought none accusations of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. See, it ties in well with what Brother David was teaching us about superstition, because the Jews had superstitions too. Verse 20, And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then King Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself tomorrow, said he, that uh, thou shalt hear him. Festus so far is not super honest about the events, but he's playing people pleaser. He's a politician. With Agrippa in front of him, he's making everything sound right down the line, like you might do when your boss is in the room. I did everything according to procedure, exactly as we've been taught to do. I thought it might honor you, Agrippa. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and the principal men of the city at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore I have brought him forth before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. And then Agrippa asked Paul to speak uh, himself. Oh, Agrippa, there in verse 23, you enter the scene with such pomp, such circumstance, with your sister wife on your arm. Yeah, reality TV didn't introduce sister wives but the Herods were pretty good at it. If only you could but know this king of kings that Paul is telling you about in this chapter. You would have to be emptied of self for there to be root. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of this world. Fourthly, mere reformation of outward lives. That's all an almost Christian would ever have, is the mere reformation of outward lives. This is probably one of the worst. And we have to, again, understand there is no almost Christian, because this one's going to be a little hard to stomach. We have a lot of friends, a lot of family, a lot of relation that attend denominational big box institutions, calling it church, calling the singing worship and the coffee in the hallway worship and going to the bathroom worship and parking the car worship and then leaving worship. That might be the closest. And it's not worship. Beloved, we have to see this for what it is. We shouldn't be okay with all these empty pews if there's still 30 people on our roll that aren't here. We should definitely not be okay if they're in one of these churches pouring syrup and Cool Whip on the Bible bringing ballet dancers through or whatever else it is that they do. 
But those churches are specially designed to attract the youth and the naive and the Agrippas. Agrippa here is almost persuaded. Agrippa, in his own self-assessment, probably would have been all the way persuaded in a place like this innovation church or whatever they're calling themselves, or the church on the move, which, by the way, in six months hasn't. It's still there. They've never knocked on my door. Have they knocked on yours? The Lord didn't authorize every kind of church. He authorized one kind of church. And upon himself, that rock shall it be built and established. And the gates of hell shall not stand against thee. Oh, but pastor, we're so small. We're still here. She's been small before. Sadly, it is the Jews that give us our example of this point in our text. Look at verses 19 through 21 of Acts 26. Paul says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meets for repentance. Sound familiar? John the Baptist said the same thing. So did the Lord Jesus Christ. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. They're perfectly okay with reforming the outside of the cup. Perfectly okay with dressing to the nines and looking their absolute holiest. The the rabbis had all of the perfect garments steamed and pressed and full color, full regalia. But what about the inside? They'll never have it. Any who are almost Christian will never have it. They don't just leave their Bibles at the denominational institution. Most of them these days don't encourage you to have one. Kind of grew up with that if you grew up Catholic like I did. Just trust us. We'll tell you what you need to know. And they did. To repent is to reveal outwardly what lies inside the cup, the wicked vessel itself. That cup, me. It is the beginning of emptying ourselves. However, if our reformation stops with just the perceptions of our friends and neighbors, we will never altogether have Christ. Depart from me, you never knew me. Agrippa's intellect was instructed, his emotions touched, but his will was unyielding and his heart still cold and hard. The word was heard, but not made effectual by the working of the Holy Spirit, and his fruit bore evidence of his true nature. Oh, Paul, you silly guy, I'm almost persuaded. I'm almost persuaded to be a Christian like you. We got to get together more often and do this. Agrippa knows that's not going to happen. And Paul knows it's not going to happen. Second point, what is it to be altogether Christian? Bear with me, we're born down on 30 minutes already and just got to the second point, which is most of the sermon. First, to believe in Christ's doctrines. Second, to rely on his atonement. Third, to love his person. And fourth, to follow his steps. First and foremost, what is it to be altogether a Christian? It is to believe in Christ's doctrines. We're going to use the same text we've been using. Verses 6 through 7, we see Paul say, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. When standing for the truth of Jesus Christ, we will at times stand alone. 
If we believe in Christ's doctrines, we will be set apart and stand alone. But you know, there's a word for set apart, sanctified, and we're commanded to be set apart or sanctified, aren't we? You are not here for me. You are not to be here for your spouses. But you are to worship him and sit under his teaching because he commanded it. He's caused for us to draw near unto himself, Goshen, what we've been learning about on Wednesday night. But beloved, if you're here for any other reason, you won't stay. You've seen it. At some point, you will come to the conclusion that you were almost persuaded. Notice that this was part of what Jesus instructed Paul. Acts 26, verse 16, Rise and stand upon thy feet. The purpose of the armor that this same Paul writes about to the Ephesians was to do what? Stand. And even here, receiving the accusations, he says, Here, uh, there in verse 6, And now I stand and am judged. I don't think he's saying that I am standing upright. I think he's literally saying, I was called and now I stand. And how's verse 7 end? Before the Jews who bring this accusation to me. They're the ones that hauled me in front of y'all. One of his most consistent teachings in every letter is the purpose of God's people to believe and stand on the things of Christ. Secondly, the altogether Christian relies on his atonement because they know there is no other payment, no other propitiation. Thereby we would have access to the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. He says in verse 22 and 23, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and the Gentiles. I'm not going to say Paul was sneaky. But Paul's one of the only Christians that, that I can think of that can literally tell you he's witnessing to you and you don't realize it until the conversation's over. He literally says, I continue unto yesterday when I got locked up. No, he says, I continue unto this day. Witnessing both to small and y'all. Great, Governor, King, Bernice. In this questioning hall, this judgment hall, he says, even to this day, I continue to rely on his atonement. That's what brought me here. They think the Jews brought him. Felix thinks he brought him. Festus thinks he brought him. Agrippa thinks he came to him. No, 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 no. Jesus brought Paul to this very moment to do exactly that which he was commanded to do. He needed this help to do what Christ had commanded him. Verse 16, 17, and 18. I've appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Delivering you from the people I'm sending you to to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This is the atonement he relies upon. It is the atonement he presents unto them. Paul, therefore, was reliant upon the very atonement he was ordained to preach. 
It led him, it sustained him, and it was altogether a reward unto him. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, the altogether Christian loves the person of Christ. There's an amazing thing that's very subtle in Acts 26, but do you see anywhere in here where Paul is afraid? Because he loves the person of Christ. He knows that before him they did this to his Lord and Master. They did it to Deacon Stephen that we were reading of in Acts 7. Paul's not fearful even a little bit in his words and his presentation of the gospel to these masses. Thinking about the psalm that Brother Charlie read, we don't know what these last days will be like. We don't know what, what we might be brought, whom we might be brought before, what we might be made to suffer. But my prayer is that we are much like Stephen, much like Paul, standing even in those hours unashamed. And whatever it is that we might face. So right now, I'm weighed down and I'm cumbered by a lot of little things that the Lord has permitted for us to experience. None of them are big things yet. He's growing me. He's not testing me. He's not trying to fall, fall me away or cause me to be almost, but he's growing me. Something's coming. These little things should not have the impact on us that they are having. As we read this passage, we must note that Agrippa was not there for Paul. Yes, the previous chapter makes it clear that Paul appealed unto Caesar in chapter 25, verse 11. And Festus, his captor, was performing a political game of people-pleasing when he consulted with Agrippa about Paul during his visit to the area in verses 12 through 22. They were not there for Paul at all. I mean, it's literally in the text. Festus did not come there because Paul was there. And Agrippa did not come there because Paul was there. Paul was there to be a witness unto them of his love of Jesus Christ and his working on the cross. It's one of my favorite lines. I think it's from a movie. But I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with me. This is the situation. Paul, who was brought in, likely shackled before these men, was not stuck in there with them. He had a captive audience. He had the king's permission to speak. They were stuck under the teaching of God's word. They were trapped to face some things that were not done in secret, not done in a corner, that line up perfectly with the word of the prophets. Agrippa, you know these things. You've read these things. Tell me there's not some connection between who we're supposed to have been looking for and Christ Jesus who came to me on Damascus Road. Give me an assessment, Agrippa. I know you believe these things to be true. Remember to whom Paul was sent, verses 16, 17, and 18, to make thee a minister, Jesus says, and a witness. That's who he is. Both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which will appear unto thee. That's what he is to witness of. Delivering thee from the people the Jews who above in this text rejected the idea of repentance, and from the Gentiles, of which Festus is, unto whom now I send thee. Christ is the driver. This event is no accident, and the remainder of this text 
is his mission before them, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. We've read that verse a couple of times. You notice there's only two options. The power of Satan or the power of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. There's no almost, is there? There's no purgatory mentioned here. He's either going to, through the preaching of the gospel made effectual by the Holy Ghost, free them from the power of Satan, or they'll what? They'll remain there under the power of Satan. This is why we can say with the utmost confidence that it is a misnomer. There's no almost Christians. And we're in a dangerous world in which I kind of believe like you do, and I can kind of see it both ways. Brother told me that one time about election. I don't know how you could see it both ways. There's only one. Right. And lastly, to follow Christ's steps. The altogether Christian follows Jesus. In all these points, we see up to this point, Paul followed Jesus faithfully since Damascus Road. We also find he continued to do so in the present as a prisoner of Festus. Verse 24 and 25, and, thus as, uh, and as he thus spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. So in the past he was faithful, from Damascus Road to this moment. In the present he is faithful. And even at the conclusion of this chapter, as Agrippa meets with his impromptu counsel, Paul's mission continues. Look at verse 31 and 32. And when they were gone aside, Agrippa, Festus, uh, Felix, sorry, I get the two confused. They're, they're not winners, y'all. Uh, and Bernice, of course. As they go to the side, uh, they say unto themselves, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. This is the conclusion they continue to find, just like they did with Jesus. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty might have been made free, might have been released if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Beloved, Paul's hope was not in being freed from these silly restraints. His greatest desire was to not have those restraints removed. His greatest desire was to preach the gospel. He was already at liberty. He was preaching to a king and to a governor and to Bernice. His heart was altogether on the will of his master. Look again at verse 10 and 11. Then said Paul, I'm sorry, Acts 25, verse 10 and 11. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. What he's saying there is, if you can't make this stick, I want to give the gospel to Caesar. Philippians chapter 1, still Paul writing, verses 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and my hope. This is how we know that that is Paul's heart, to go and give the gospel unto Caesar. And he's longed to get to Rome for a while anyways. 
because he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. He's literally describing death as a selfish desire. But if he's going to keep living, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Joe Biden. If I got to stay here, I want to go all the way to the White House. Let's go. Because I want to give the gospel to him too. This was the heart of Paul. To be the most unashamed. The unashamed of all the unashamed. That chief of sinners. He knew there was a great wrong done by his hand, by his consent. And the gospel was the only thing that could make it new. This last point is interesting to consider in relation to the humility required for our walk. And this is where we'll close. Festus tiptoed around the expectation of the Jews when they brought charges against Paul in chapter 25, verse 1 through 5. Agrippa walked in with great noise and pomp. But when it came to answering Paul's weighty questions pertaining to everlasting life, he could not mutter more than a whisper to this prisoner in shackles when he says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. To the Jewish mobs and the royal Gentiles and Jew alike who now stood over Paul, he stands and continues to speak forth the words of truth and soberness. We are not more noble than our dear brother Paul. It's not beneath us, in other words, to be doing the same thing. Let us take our mission of witnessing more seriously as the day approaches, that we both almost and all together find ourselves persuaded of our security in Him. It is literally the very next chapter when that great storm, the Eurycliden, comes upon them. I'm not going to give a lot away. I'm hoping to preach on that next week if the Lord lets me. But Paul's confidence in the Lord's ability to sustain him for the work he's been called to grows with every event. Paul's still a man. He's still a man. Miles ahead of me, don't get me wrong, but he's still a man. I imagine when this conversation ended, when they walked out of the room, Paul might have cried, might have sweat bullets, certainly started to breathe again. The Eurycliden, I think he believed that they would all make it through. But I bet when he got on the land, that adder hanging off of his arm was, <laughs> I'm still alive because this is a problem. I'm still alive. I wasn't supposed to be. We could have all perished in that Eurycliden. Now I don't know if there's anything left to preach. But may the Lord see fit to bless this message. We're in dangerous times, beloved. We're amongst many who think they are worshiping the true God. We're amongst anti-Semites that think they're doing the Christian thing. We're against a world that sees these events that we talked about this morning with the earthquakes. And, um, uh, there's a flood coming for California, Southern California, where they just had that hurricane. Uh, it may hit, I think. I, I don't remember what day it's supposed to start. But millions have been told to evacuate. These things aren't normal in February. But there are millions that say our God would not do these things. But man, we've got to get green so we can save this planet because he's not capable of doing that. To those who are altogether Christian, that altogether know the truth, we have a great responsibility not to go and beat up all those that are wrong, but to actually give an answer for the hope that we have. Paul has hope here, not fear. 
This whole chapter, he has hope. May the Lord see fit to give us that same spirit. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We ask, Father, your mercy upon us and upon those on our prayer request list, Lord, as we continue to beseech your intervention in these things. We ask, Lord, that you be with our members both here and away, also in Holden, Father. We ask you be with the folks in Caldwell, Lord. These two that uh, continue to look for a pastor, Father, we pray, Lord, you might prepare and send a man that will lead and guide and feed them, Father, one that they can grow with and be strengthened with. And, Father, we give you all the glory and honor for it. We ask, Father, that you be with the afternoon services, be with the week that's ahead. And, Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.